Hello and welcome to the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast with your host, Charles Cantu, founder and CEO of Reset Digital. I'm Mike Burbridge, Director of Marketing Futures and the executive producer of this podcast. I don't think it's overstating it to say that influencer marketing is one of the hottest trends in the industry right now. Brands are teaming up with celebrities, artists, and moms in Chewbacca masks to reach consumers in a way that feels genuine and native to the social platforms they spend all their time on. But all too often, brands jump into these relationships without the proper vetting, which can lead to disaster. At the 2019 a Influencer Conference, we caught up with Richard Plansky and Benedict Hamilton of Kroll, a corporate investigation company, and spoke with them about brand safety and influencer marketing. Richard and Ben discussed the right way for brands to approach influencer vetting, shared some influencer horror stories, and shed light on one of the biggest misconceptions brands have about micro-influencers. All right, so I am really excited today. I'm here with Rich Plansky and Benedict Hamilton. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your backstory? Um, because Rich, yours is very specific to some things in the industry, and I think people need to hear that. And, and Ben, we'd like to bring you to our audience as well. Uh, we're pretty excited about you guys being here. Sure. So thanks for having us, Charles. Mm -hmm. uh, both Ben and I work for a company called Kroll. We're a corporate investigations company. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think, Ben will correct me if I'm wrong, that we are the oldest corporate investigations company. Uh, I believe you're right, Rich. Maybe yeah. in the, yeah. in the yeah. U.S., if not the world, we've been around for over 45 years. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we're in the business of facts. We find facts. Uh, and everything that we do involves figuring stuff out, for want of a better phrase. So one of our strengths is our ability to bring together people from lots of different backgrounds. And Ben and I actually have quite different backgrounds. So uh, I'm a recovering lawyer, although some might say you never fully recover from that experience. Uh, I started my professional life um, as a prosecutor at the Manhattan DA's office in the 90s, um, not doing white-collar crime, kind of doing the opposite, prosecuting violent crime, mostly sex crimes and homicides, when the city was a very different place than it is now. Uh, then had the experience of working for the Bloomberg administration during the mayor's first term, taking a lot of those lessons from being a frontline soldier and trying to turn those into good policy, make mm -hmm. the system work better. Uh, and then pivoted almost 14 years ago to working for Kroll and in corporate investigations. Now, um, one of the cases that you and I have talked about, Charles, that I think is relevant to our discussion today is um, at a prior firm called K2 Intelligence, Mm -hmm. um, I had the privilege of working with the ANA mm -hmm. on an industry-wide investigation into rebates in yep. the media buying space. Right. Um, certainly for, for me, it was a window into a completely different world um, and great opportunity to get to know a lot of folks in the industry mm -hmm. and understand some of the problems that they face every day, which are really sort of unique compared to other industries. Um, and. I've never forgotten that experience. It's mm -hmm. been um, a formative experience sure. for me personally. And um, we have, as a company, um, always wanted to be more involved in the advertising industry because we think it's a unique industry with unique problems that you don't really see in other industries. Mm -hmm. And we think we have some unique experiences, skills, and tools to help clients in this industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so <clears throat> I, I, I joined Kroll um, about 14 years ago as well. Um, before that, I was a, an investigative journalist on <clears throat> British television. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, also quite focused on crime, but I've been with Kroll since 2005. Um, in the investigation space, um, and one of the really interesting things uh, that's kept me kind of um, interested and, and alive in, in the workspace is the way technology has just completely changed in that time period. So whereas yeah. um, 14 years ago we were very focused on laptops and um, testimony from people, the in investigating what happens on the internet has become more and more important to more and more different things. Mm -hmm. So that's been quite a focus for me over the last decade or so, mm -hmm. um, looking to find, uh, work out ways to work out who someone is on the internet. It's a big part of, mm -hmm. of what we do. Um, but also developing tool, work, identifying and, and acquiring tools and skills to help us cover people's um, so, uh, digital footprint, all sure. the stuff they post, Mm -hmm. to help us um, um, understand uh, more about who they are quickly. Right. Um, and that's, that's got a lot of relevance in a lot of different fields sure. that Kroll works in. But um, it, it, what's interesting is it also has a lot of relevance in the digital marketing space. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what are some of the things that brands need to understand uh, concerning brand safety before they, before they begin, because we're here for the Influencer Conference at the ANA today, so this is, um, is going to be a gauntlet of, of interviews. But, um, you know, what are the things that brands need to understand here when they're getting into this space when it, when it comes to security and, and risk and, and fraud? So the, the talk that Ben and I gave yesterday was called, This Job Would Be Easy Without the People. <laughs> and the most important thing to remember is that influencers are people, mm -hmm. and people are complicated, and people bring risk. Yeah. Every time you do business with any living, breathing human being, mm -hmm. there's risk. Reputational risk, financial risk, sometimes even legal and regulatory risk. Oh, yeah. And some people are riskier than others. And you know, we're talking in gross generalities now, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. caveat. Sure. Um, on the record, um, but Ben and I have been in this business for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the platforms of our business is due diligence. In other words, helping people understand the risks inherent in doing business with other people mm. in various contexts. And we've probably collectively been involved in a thousand of those. So it's impossible to do that many cases without seeing patterns. Sure. And one of the one of the immutable principles is that some people are riskier than others. Oh, of course, yeah, different thresholds. So um, if you were, you know, just speaking generally again, um, people who are younger tend to be riskier mm -hmm. because they don't have as much of a track record. Mm -hmm. um, and they also, you know, haven't been beaten down by age like people <laughs> like Ben and I. Uh, they tend to be impulsive. Um, you know, the, the membrane that separates brain from mouth or fingertips <laughs> tends to be permeable and sometimes non-existent. Sure. Um, and you know, risky people tend to be provocative. They like scrapping. They like getting involved in controversy. And so if it sounds like I'm describing the general profile of your typical social media influencer, mm -hmm. it's because I am. Um, they definitely tend to be younger, uh, intentionally provocative, uh, and from our experience, oftentimes impulsive. Um, and the same things that make them really attractive 
as tools in a marketing strategy also make them very risky from a reputation standpoint. So that's an important thing for marketers to realize that, you know, you're, there's a deli near my office. Mm -hmm. They let you buy half a sandwich, right? You can actually ask for half a sandwich, buy half a sandwich. Mm -hmm. Influencers don't work that way. You got to buy the whole sandwich, right? So mm -hmm. the sandwich might have some tasty stuff in it. Mm -hmm. Like the ability to reach hundreds of thousands or even millions of young people, especially from 18 to 34, mm -hmm. um, that are really prime audiences for whatever it is that you're selling. But you also buy the other things that that person does. So interestingly, you know, Ben and I have learned a lot at this conference in the last couple of days. A lot of the worry that we hear expressed is, has this person who we're bringing on to promote our product, mm -hmm. have they pushed other products that are competitors to ours in, in the past. Mm -hmm. It's very sort of narrow within that band that they're looking at. Um, what concerns Ben and I and what we encourage people to think about in terms of really looking at risk holistically is what about the other stuff that has nothing to do with the product? What right. about um, you know racist or anti-Semitic commentary? Right. Um, what about misogynistic commentary? Um, what about faking the number of followers that you have? Mm -hmm. And then what about things that don't happen in the virtual world but happen in the real world? Mm -hmm. People who, you know, I, I think I, I'm, I'm stating the obvious, but that's never stopped me before. <laughs> you know, people have one life online mm -hmm. and they have one life offline yes. and they may have nothing to do with each other. Right. It may be completely different. So people who are you know, happy-go-lucky and positive online mm -hmm. might also be getting arrested for domestic sure. violence offline. Right. And so I guess the message is you have to look at the whole person. Yep. Because if you're hitching your wagon to an influencer, you're hitching your wagon to the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. And uh, you know, when you think about <coughs> how much effort brands have put in, you know, often over decades, to build that 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 trust with consumers, to yeah. to um, um, stand for certain values, um, it 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 it's, it's it surprises me when you know over the last couple of days, we, as as Rich says, we've heard a lot about you know can this influencer reach a niche market? How do you measure what impact they're having? All very important things from a marketing point of view, yeah. but not so much concern about is this person jeopardizing. The brand reputation that we have taken decades to build. Mm -hmm. You know, are we going to be associating ourselves with somebody who's going to lead to a consumer boycott? Who's going mm -hmm. to upset um, significant parts of, of the population or, or damage people's perception of the values that we hold? And those those are things which, um, you know, when you, when it's spelt out, I think everyone agrees is really important. And mm -hmm. you know, some brands are are making sure that they are associating themselves with people who have values which match their own. Yeah, absolutely. When I was a baby radio rep in San Francisco, shout out to Greg Nemitz, thanks for the opportunity. Um, we pushed that hard with our with our celebrities on the radio and on the air, the brand association and the trusted voices of talk radio and all that good stuff. So um, yeah, that is a, that's, if you take the good, you take the bad as well with it. That makes perfect sense. Um, what do you think the, the biggest misconception in the industry is um, in regard to influencer marketing? I, I, I think the biggest misconception is the, is the idea that the, 
the, the there's a lot of talk at the moment about the power of the nano uh, influencer and the micro influencer. Mm-hmm. So you know, you've got your celebrities with millions of followers, yep. and then you've got celebrities who've got a hundred thousand to five hundred thousand or a million followers. And then there's a lot of interest um, um, with brands on the on the on the more niche influencers, mm-hmm. you know, up to up to a hundred thousand or even below a thousand, mm-hmm. um, because they've got better trust and engagement with their with their audiences. They direct message them back. That kind of mm-hmm. that kind of all those good things. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest misconception is that those micro nano influencers are less risky, because actually what we what we found is pretty close to the opposite, mm. and actually it's the it's that you know we've seen examples where um, there was a there was a, a fifty year old um, housewife. Um, she's a she's a beauty um, um, blogger. Um, she's got a fantastic loyalty amongst her amongst her audience, her followers. She she is a prolific poster, and she blends you know the personal with the kind of the the more the more brand focused material in a way that you know is, is clearly engaging. And you would have thought 50-year-old woman, housewife, would be very, very low risk. And then, you know, using, using tools which enable us to kind of look thoroughly through everything she's ever posted, we discovered quite quickly that, you know, her commentary at times of um, terror attacks was really, really scary. You know, mm. calling Muslims dogs, talking about the fact they don't deserve to have citizenship. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and and, and that's, just, that's just one example of many. Sure. How, how would you recommend brands conduct their their consumer research and their influencer research uh, match here? So in our industry, there's a concept called due diligence, yeah. uh, which, you know, it started really with investment bankers who were pouring millions of dollars into a particular deal or uh, an initial public offering. And enough of them started getting burnt by essentially getting into deals with the wrong people sure. that this industry was born really in the 80s. Mm. So now it's business as usual. Um, right. People in the world of finance always want to know more about who they are um, taking on mm-hmm. before they actually commit money and reputation sure. into a particular deal. That's spread to the world of employment anytime uh, for almost every major corporation before they hire any sort of employee at any level, they do a background check. Yep. Now, and they're not all the same. So you don't do the same background check on um, you know, an entry-level analyst as you do on a C-suite executive right. because the risk is different. And a good due diligence program has the diligence calibrated to the level of risk. The higher the risk, the deeper you go. So what I would encourage people in marketing to think about before they engage in influencers is have you done your due diligence? Have you really sussed out the risk inherent in this person? And have you done it in a way that is commensurate with the risk mm-hmm. that that person presents? Now, the risk could be in the person, him or herself. Mm-hmm. So look, some people are really known quantities, celebrities. Um, a lot of these folks, it's all out there. Right. right. And so the risk of that is fairly low versus someone like one of these micro or nano influencers that Ben has uh, you know, just spoke about where you know, you really don't know much about these folks at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And you might be surprised at what you get. Um, And when that happens, you know, it can it can blow up pretty spectacularly. Uh, And then there's risk in the deal itself. Mm -hmm. So it could be something where this influencer is going to be the face of your campaign, face of your product, in which case the risk is really high. Uh, Or it could be a really expensive campaign, a really strategic campaign. The 
the risk of failure, you know, the consequences of failure would be pretty severe. Um, or it could be something that isn't particular, particularly strategic or expensive, in which case the risk is lower. Mm -hmm. And so um, if you treat this the way that people in other businesses treat this, mm -hmm. understanding that there is risk inherent in people mm -hmm. and that the best way to manage that risk is by learning more about who those people are mm -hmm. and how they have behaved in the past, then it puts you in a position not only to avoid risk, but also to mitigate risk because look, you know, especially with younger folks, they can evolve. And if they have been, you know, impolitic or um, you know, impulsive in the things that they've said and done online in the past, mm -hmm. that, can be, that can be addressed sometimes depending upon how severe it is. Mm -hmm. um, and it puts you in a position to mitigate that risk going forward. Right. Um, it, you know, that if you don't know and you get blindsided later on, not only do you have egg on your face, but you don't have anything good to say from a PR point of view. Having a program right. puts you in much, much more defensible position because you can say, look, you know, we get it. We have rules and codes of conduct for mm -hmm. our influencers, and we vet them. And our vetting is pegged to risk. It is a risk-based program, sure. which is the way that responsible corporate citizens act. And in the event that something should go wrong, I think people inherently understand compliance programs like this are not perfect. Right. They're meant to be you know, smart and logical and sustainable. But it really helps when you can say, look, we have a program. We have a compliance program. We have a diligence program. We followed our own rules here. Sure. Sometimes we can't catch everything. But when this happens, we have a system and rules for how we deal with it. Yep. That's exactly what we did here. It's really bad when companies don't follow their own rules. Hmm. It's even worse when they don't have them. Right. If you have no program at all saying, we had no idea that this was a problem, um, and then finding out later, as, as we have seen in many cases, that the answer was plain to see for anyone who did even minimal diligence, hmm. um, that's not a happy place to be. So we're running programs like that for um, several very well-known global brands um, and their, their subsidiaries. And um, what, we're, what we're finding is about 20% of the influencers that we look at, mm -hmm. we find content that the brands find so problematic they don't want to go through with the, with the endorsement, with the influencer relationship. And maybe 5 to 10% who have problematic content, but as Rich says, with a little bit of engagement, they're kind of saying to these people, look, you did some stupid stuff when you were, you know, a child. Mm -hmm. You know, can you delete those blackface images, or can you remove those mm -hmm. homophobic con uh, that homophobic content? Um, because the brands have confidence that, as you know, Rich just said, that they'll evolve. But twenty percent is quite a big, quite a big uh, percentage that they right. they find content that they just decide this is too too risky for our brand. Right, and a lot of that content. Um, is on what the influencers believe to be personal or kind of private mm -hmm. um, um, accounts. Sure. So we, we see cases, you know, the, the, the Instagram account, which they are using to, to sell themselves to the brand, it is often pretty vanilla. Um, but right. uh, the, the personal, you know, Facebook account or the personal, um, the hidden Instagram account or, the, uh, or, or buried amongst the kind of the, the flurry of tweets, there's content that's problematic. 
So what what we do uh, for brands, and uh, you know, in a in a way that's proportionate to the risk, and there's different levels of scrutiny, is is we map all the we, you know there are tools that we use that help us map all the accounts that somebody has, mm-hmm. pull down all of that content, and then run that against three or four hundred keywords sure. to to look for the for the risks, um, and then give that back to the brands. So they can make a decision on, on on whether or not they they want to go forward. Mm-hmm. But that that's a very um, thorough approach which um, I mean it, it amazes me that brands put their their integrity and their, their reputation in the hands of influencers who have been scrutinized you know often only manually by you know the intern <laughs> who yep. knows how to operate the, the Instagram profile at the back of the agency or or, or, or deep inside the company if, if these people are going to be your 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 ambassador mm. you need to make sure the values match yeah. Yeah, and twenty percent—that's one in five. So one out of five people they're rejecting, and that's a that's a pretty big number. That's a, a pretty big number, number. Yeah. And then, so what I what I heard there was was tools and rules for policy, right? To to make sure that you're covered and you inoculate, you know, what trouble may come, but at least you have a response uh, to the problem. So that's that's brilliant and just basic common sense. I love common sense business advice. <laughs> um, <laughs> What traits and qualities should marketers look for when they are collaborating with an influencer? So what's what's yeah, I, good, what's bad? Yeah, I don't think there's any special sauce here, Charles. Mm-hmm. I think you would look for the you should look for the same things that you would look for in any business partner. Mm-hmm. You know, is this person trustworthy, honest? Mm-hmm. And in this particular case, the one thing I think that might be a little special, given the relatively young age. Mm-hmm. of your average influencer, again, speaking in generalities, mm-hmm. is aren't they coachable? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these people did not expect to be famous. In fact, I would go out on a limb and say probably most of them don't expect to be famous. And when you're not famous and don't believe that everything you say and do is being scrutinized, you act in a different way. So one of the points that Ben made before, mm-hmm. which is an excellent one, is that oftentimes when we find problematic content online, it's in old accounts mm-hmm. or you know, less prominent platforms where they're not famous. They don't think that anyone is watching. Right. Old My, platforms. MySpace, the old MySpace MySpace. Account. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Do Friendster. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so they, it's, it, you know, people mature. You know, if you're yeah. 16, 17 years old and you don't think anyone's watching, you act in one way. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily indicative of the way that you will act when you're a bit older and you're actually doing something professionally. Right. But there is the need to be able to evolve and to take coaching and direction. Right. And so especially when you're talking about influencers on the younger end of the scale, I would say coachability, the, the, the willingness to take direction, mm-hmm. constructive criticism, and comport your behavior to meet the values mm-hmm. of the marketing company would be at the top of my list for desirable traits. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that makes a lot of sense. It's a, it's an element of predictability too. You, um, you know, some of the influencers we look at um, are posting. You know, probably when they've they've had a few drinks, mm. and they're you know they're making some quite wild assertions. That's a difficult person to work with because it's a little bit unpre- they're a little bit unpredictable. Mm-hmm. But I think you know one of the key things that um, the clients we're working with are are, are looking for is it, it's okay to be provocative. You know, and and depending on the the demographic that they're trying to reach, you know, maybe 
profanity is okay, maybe a bit of nudity is okay. Um, but there's a difference between provocative and nasty. Right. That's the key thing that people are kind of looking to, for our help mm -hmm. to find from, from past posts because uh, nobody really likes nasty. And that impulsivity too is really a key factor. So there are some people, we've all seen them online, who never saw a fight, they didn't want to join. And they fire off responses instantly, and it's almost always something that is regrettable. So some people have more self-control than others, and I think in this context, self-control is an absolutely wonderful quality. Mm -hmm. It goes, it sits right next to coachability. Um, and impulsivity is on the other end of the scale, where if you really can't control yourself, because there's going to be provocative commentary coming your way, if you really can't control yourself. And again, that membrane that separates your brain from your fingertips is really porous. Mm -hmm. Sooner or later, the odds are pretty good that you're going to get jammed up. Yeah, yeah. What, what, I, what I've found interesting working with the brands over the last couple of years <coughs> is um, you know, some, a lot of the influencers, uh, particularly the younger ones, you know, are very associated with causes, whether that's mm -hmm. veganism, whether that's animal protection, whether that's abortion, whether that's gun control, the, it's, it's in, it, which obviously are highly controversial subjects, which whichever stance you take upsets a lot of people. Sure. What, what I've found interesting is the brands don't seem to be worried about that at all, as long as it's authentic and as long as it's respectful you know, to, mm -hmm. the, to the other side, then it's, then it's fine. But it's trying to find, I think they're trying to find influencers who, who tread the right side of that committed, authentic line and not the kind of aggressive, nasty side. Sure. The, the other thing which um, interested me that, that seems to really score highly with the, the brands um, in a way perhaps I didn't anticipate it would is that uh, they're very interested in, in how the influencers treat their followers. So influencers mm. who have who who are aggressive uh, or, or deprecating to their followers, that's a that's a very big no no. Mm -hmm. um, but influencers who who engage with their followers, obviously that's a that's a very big plus. But the, the tone of how they do it, how regularly they do it, whether they do it, these are also really important questions. That's really fascinating to me, especially that they're willing to endorse you know certain sounds like political views and. Um, that works until the point that it doesn't, right? If someone gets on the other side of that. Yeah. Know? And I know that firsthand from working in radio with some very high-profile, opinionated uh, talk show hosts. So, so yeah, that can, that can work a lot of different ways. Um, what are some horror stories? Like, what's, the, what's the worst? Give us your best. Ben is the king of horror <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I, you you hear about this from from the brands. You know, there have been some um, there have been some cases um, where uh, uh, influencers have have made racist comments and have made um, anti-Semitic comments or comments which have been perceived as such, and and it's really hit sales. It's really yeah. hit sales quite dramatically. So some of the some of the brands that we work with have come to us directly as a result of these kinds of experiences. But it, you know they're 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 not they're not uncommon. If you look at the the YouTubers, you know the, who are mm -hmm. probably the the people who 
who broke the mold, you know, created this space. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the YouTubers who have millions of followers, you know, I'm thinking of people like um, Jeffrey Starr here in the in the US. I'm thinking of people like Zoella um, in the UK. Um, that they they have uh, in both cases uh, been pulled to task by by newspapers and exposed for racist comments in a way that has severely damaged their ability. You know, the the the, the trust that was placed in them by brands. Yeah. Um, what what I find uh, extraordinary about it is is they can see it hit the bottom line. So in the same way that when an influencer endorses a, a lipstick color and all of a sudden it sells out all over Europe, um, a, a, an influencer speaks out. There's one quite famous case in the UK where a young lady spoke out against white people. She she had a real problem with white people, and um, um, they they could see a ten twenty percent impact on sales by the next week. Influencer marketing is projected to be a $101 billion industry by 2020. Yet influencer marketing operates within a complex, rapidly evolving ecosystem with rising levels of fraud. The ANA's 2019 Influencer Marketing Guide is your trusted source for everything you need to navigate influencer marketing. From brand case studies to expert perspectives on hot button issues and metrics for influencer compensation and standard engagement rates. Visit ana.net backslash influencer marketing today and click the playbooks and guides icon to download your free influencer marketing playbook and guide exclusively for ANA members. There are obviously some high-profile ones that have been in the news recently. Logan Paul, mm -hmm. um, and with I think something like 20 million subscribers to his YouTube channel, um, posting a video of a suicide victim in the oh. Japanese suicide forest. I think that was in 2017. Um, doesn't even don't even need to get into the details of right. the Varsity Blues, you know, Lori Laughlin's children in that story. Yep. Um, and then one lesser-known one that. Um, we talked about yesterday that it sort of uh, highlights the dichotomy sometimes between the way a person is online and the way they are in real life. There is a, uh, a YouTuber who amassed something like 500,000 subscribers by making these really upbeat, wholesome acapella music videos. Uh, at the same time, he was also soliciting a lot of his young followers to send him sexually explicit videos which resulted in him being arrested, charged, and convicted of a child pornography charge mm. and going to prison for 10 years. So these things can happen. I think those are at the extreme end. Yeah, yeah. But uh, they, uh, interestingly, they also happen at the, at the celebrity end, too. Sure. You know, there's um, Lewis Hamilton, <coughs> is a very well-known uh, British racing driver. He's, he's won the, for, the Formula One for the sixth uh, time this year, which is an all-time all high. He moved from one brand to another, um, one around Christmas one year, and that Christmas he criticised um, his nephew for um, wearing what looked like a skirt and and kind of you know lambasting him publicly mm. on his on his thing. Well, I, I happen to know from talking to the brands involved that damp you know his 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 price for for sponsorship um, shrank dramatically uh, mm. that year. Um, and actually, you know, with Lewis, if you if you if you, you know if you'd looked back into his past, you would have seen things which um, which might have given clues that that was an area that maybe a little bit of coaching or a little bit of engagement on might have might have avoided some 
high-profile problems. So I want to jump on that point, Charles, yeah. if I could. So some of these horror stories that we've discussed and that you could easily find out there on the internet, some of these were not knowable in advance, right? People are complicated, can't know what's in somebody's heart sometimes until they act upon it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these were knowable in advance. For a lot of these, these horror stories, had someone done a reasonable due diligence at the time of engagement, mm -hmm. they would have known, they would have seen red flags that either would have prevented them from engaging yeah. in the first place or would have given them a roadmap for remediating that risk before it blew up. Yeah, we actually um, uh, went into a couple of examples of this yesterday. We took a couple of people who, who um, have blown up in the media and then looked back um, into their earlier posts. And okay, you couldn't necessarily find exactly the same problem, but there were issues and values that were brought up, you know, um, that 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 should have war could have warned people that these were problematic uh, ambassadors for their brand. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's not always easy to find those red flags because going back to the concept of due diligence, it, it used to be really easy because mm -hmm. it was just about like sending people down to the courthouse and pulling papers and reading them. Mm -hmm. Now with the advent of the internet and social media in particular, it's taken a huge chunk of what used to be non-public private information and slid it over into the light onto the public side. So the, the, the sheer volume mm. of content that could be relevant is dramatically greater than it was even yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the, the uh, ability, the, the need to find relevant content within that ocean is more acute than it's ever been before. The, the signal to noise ratio is lower than it's ever been before. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about influencers, these people who do, there's, you know, a lot of noise. generate content and noise yeah. every day, you're yeah. talking about yeah. thousands and thousands yeah. and thousands of posts and, and finding things that are more likely to be relevant within that ocean of noise mm -hmm. is increasingly difficult and requires increasingly specific skill sets and tools. Yeah. So I know one of the issues that came up yesterday that I think is worth talking about is, okay, so if you buy that concept that you should know something about these folks before you, before you engage with them, yep. who should do the diligence? So let me start by saying who shouldn't do the diligence. Yep. Your agency shouldn't do the diligence. Here's why. It's a conflict of interest. You don't want the same agency that is seeking to legitimately profit by putting influencers and marketers together to be the one to do the diligence, right? At the very least, it creates the appearance of conflict because they have a financial interest in the deal going through. And depending upon the outcome of the diligence, it may well prevent the deal from going through. So I feel strongly that the best practice is either to take that function in-house, so if you're a marketer, and you have the ability to do that in-house, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Or to go to an independent third party that's going to call it the way that they see it. So I, I, I get that big brands can, can do these things and afford these kinds of things, mm. but how many of the, 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 the mid-sized brands or the mm. smaller brands that this probably will, this could put them out of business, yeah. quite frankly? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How many of them are actually looking at this now? Are you seeing well, them come to you? Well, we, 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 work down the, we work down the scale. So... Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, for the 
for, for the smaller brands, for the smaller campaigns, for the um, influencers who they're going to have a, you know, a one-off engagement with or a short engagement with. There's a there's a there's a reduction in scrutiny that that we can bring to bear, which which dramatically brings down price. Sure. The importance of these tools is is they are they enable even the smaller brands to get this kind of coverage quickly because it's automated. Right. Um. And so you know what we charge for um in our company is the human time that is used to kind mm-hmm. of review the results. Right. Um. So so even e- even even for the for the smaller brands, we're able. Maybe with a slightly lighter touch scrutiny, but we're still able to do that coverage and to check to check for the low hanging fruit, to check for the big banana skins, check for the major risks. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. The, the the depth of the diligence again really should be pegged to the level of risk. Mm-hmm. So, and it has to be sustainable because if it's so expensive that it you know it becomes a giant burden, then it's almost not worth doing at all in the first place. Right. So it has to be proportional. But if you're talking about you know, yesterday, I think the number $10 billion was thrown around in terms of the aggregate spend expected in 2020 on influencer marketing. $10 billion is a lot of money oh, yeah. in aggregate. And there should be some proportional spend to mitigate the risk that comes along with what you're purchasing for $10 billion. And right now, and this is, this is the way it works in all industries, right. the business side always runs out ahead of the compliance side. <laughs> And then usually, you know, we're closing the barn door after the horse has run out. Yep. This is the way it is in every industry. That, yep. That's not unique to advertising. Sure. There's this, you know, hot, new, and very effective technique involving influencers that's very targeted, very micro, and very effective to reach a young audience. Mm-hmm. But the other side of that coin is just now sort of, sort of starting to surface, and compliance will catch up eventually. Yeah. And you know, and, and I think that's wise, but it's got to be sustainable because if it's if it's crushingly expensive, yeah, then it throws the no, whole. It needs, to, it needs to be proportionate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about some of the stuff that I always ask folks. What are your thoughts on diversity and inclusion? Well, you know, I like to think that the the work that we're doing in this space is actually one of the ways in which we're helping to promote diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, what we're what we're looking for are those, you know, hidden off mic comments by people that are against diversity and inclusion, and bringing mm-hmm. that to the attention of responsible brands who do, who 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 say this doesn't match our values. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I think they I think they're very important, Charles, and I I like to think that in a small way we play a part in. In improving, you know, both diversity and inclusion, and we, we try to live it ourselves. It's mm-hmm. it, it's a key part of our values mm-hmm. as a company. Yeah. Um, so I think, look, it's the right thing to do, and we believe that. But let me make another point. Mm-hmm. I think that it's good for business. Yeah. I think if your if your goal is solely to create the most successful business you can, then you should be completely committed to, div- to diversity and inclusion. Because if you're in an echo chamber, you're going to miss stuff. If you have folks who come from different backgrounds, with different experiences, who see things in different ways, you will have a much more fulsome approach to whatever mm-hmm. market you're facing, and you'll also look a lot more like the market you're facing, mm-hmm. all of which I think is great for business. One question that I ask um, pretty much everyone, and this is usually the one that stumps them, is you know, what's your favorite album of all time? And, and and why? And then what are you listening to now? What's an album? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that that here, square here. thing that has the vinyl circle yes, inside? Yes. Of it? I'm yeah, dating I think myself. I have a few of those in my basement. <laughs> Favorite album of all time? That's a that's the toughest question you have asked so far. Yes, it usually is. Do, um, are we limited to one each? No, I think you've, okay. I think you're welcome to, to give more than one. All right. So you know, I'm a I'm a Jersey boy. Mm-hmm. So you know, I grew up going to the shore and hanging out at malls mm-hmm. and listening to Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. So Springsteen is the soundtrack of my life. And I think one of the great live performers of all time. So I have to give you as my first answer, The Wild, The Innocent, and The East Street Shuffle. That, mm-hmm. that album, no matter how many times I hear it, I always feel something. But let me also throw in a couple of others. Mm-hmm. So um, Van Morrison, Astral Weeks. Mm-hmm. There, I wish I could remember the name of the album, but there is a double album with Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald, which is one that I never get tired of listening to. Mm. Um, the English Beat, Special Beat Service. Mm. And then given our offline conversation about mm. uh, old school rap, I'm gonna give you, because this is one I've been listening to lately for yeah. some reason, um, the, uh, um, the low end. Nice. Tribe Called mm. Quest. Nice. Ooh. And I will also ask you to, to reiterate something we were talking about offline, which was um, the soundtrack that you mentioned, because I feel like that you know a lot of oh, listeners yeah. will want to hear that. So, bad movie, great soundtrack. Yep. Sometimes this happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie, I think, is Judgment Night. Yep. And the soundtrack pairs up sort of punk bands and hip-hop artists. Mm-hmm. And there is one with De La Soul and Teenage Fan Club called Fallen, which I highly recommend to all of your listeners. Yeah, here we are. Very good, very good. Um, so Rich and I grew up in very different places. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I grew up in, in a very urban uh, environment in, in central London. And uh, when, I was a, when I was a teenager, there, was, um, there, wasn't, there weren't that many clubs that stayed open late, apart from these kind of uh, dance hall community clubs mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. used to go late, 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 like till dawn. Mm-hmm. And for you know, for a young guy, you know, was was very attractive. So I I, I grew up listening to a lot of reggae, a lot of Jamaican dancehall, um, some soul, um, uh, northern UK northern soul. And I, I've been listening to you know, music's an important part of my life. I listen to a lot of music. Favorite album is a difficult question because a favorite mm-hmm. album says to me, it doesn't matter when you hear it, you're still yes. pleased to hear that 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 those tracks start. Yes. So. My my personal progression, I, I've ended up, um, I've had a kind of long, slow drive into the world of jazz. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of one of the, uh, so uh, Charlie Parker, yeah. the Savoy, the Savoy uh, recordings, mm-hmm. is probably the album that I, whenever I put it on, I'm pleased to hear it. Yes. And I think Charlie Parker took music to a, to a level, you know, it, not, I'm not sure it appeals to children. I think I think you have to be listening to music for quite a long time to really appreciate the the way he 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 riffs off the the fast drum, um, drum rhythms and you know soars high and then comes down and chops quick and I, yeah that's that's my favorite that's my favorite album. Don't you think if hip hop and jazz got married and had a baby, it would be a tribe called Quest? Ooh. In particular, the Low End Theory. Yes, yeah, interesting. I, I, 
I definitely well, think that was. Funny. Although some of the some of the Afro beats from Nigeria that are coming out, yes, uh, which we hear more and more of now in London. Mm-hmm. There's a kid there called Wizkid who's got a mm-hmm. a kind of jazzy a jazzy light touch kind of rap yeah. style. It's um, thank it's also you, quite special. thank you, Brian Beehive Biggs for starting Rock Nation Africa. So that's why a lot of that stuff is coming through. Is right? Yeah, yeah. So shout out to to a good friend, uh, and thank you. So this was fantastic, guys. Loved it. Thanks very much. Thank you, Charles. Well played. Yeah, thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast. If you have an idea for a future topic or guest, shoot us a line at marketingfutures at ANA.net. Make sure to subscribe to the Marketing Futures Podcast on the Apple Podcast Network and leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. And as always... For more insights and resources to help you prepare for the future of marketing, head on over to marketingfutures.ana.net.